It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of occultism that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. October 31st, Halloween. It was a cross-quarter day, precisely halfway between the fall equinox and the winter solstice. A holy day for witches. A small coven gathered to celebrate deep in the woods. Thirteen so-called wise ones shed their clothes. The chilly air nipped at their skin, but the fire welcomed them. They formed a tight circle around the flames. As the last of the sun's rays disappeared under the horizon, the coven began to chant. Bagahi Laka Bagahe. Lamak Kahi Akabahe Karelios. The language was archaic, unknown, inhuman. Supposedly, the words translated to kill in November, kill. I shall transport thee there myself, and without the aid of a sieve. The ritual was ancient, so ancient that the practitioners weren't even entirely sure what it was supposed to do. Legends suggested their words had the power to summon a demon or increase the coven's power. But the witches performed the act because it was their tradition, not because they understood it. They chanted until well past midnight, watched carefully by their founder, an old man named Gerald Gardner. As the air grew colder, he joined them as they leapt and thrashed about. Dancing helped them stay warm, but it also increased the charm's effectiveness. The coven thought they could feel spirits and powers thrumming through the air. The spell was working. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a podcast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just stream Cults for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoyed this episode of Cults, be sure to check out the rest of the Parcast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. Today, we're taking a deep dive into Gerald Gardner and the New Forest Coven. This week, we'll explore Gardner's early life and the factors that brought him to the occult. His fascination led him to uncover a supposedly ancient coven of witches. 
he eventually revealed their practices to the public, founding modern Wicca. Next week, we'll discuss some of the criticisms that have been leveled against Gardnerian Wicca, including accusations that the religion promotes Satanism and human sacrifice. We'll also explore how the movement has evolved from a secretive cult into one of the most rapidly growing religions today. Gerald Gardner is known as the father of modern Wicca. His writings on the Dark Forest Coven, an ancient group of spellcasting pagans, brought witchcraft from the world of supernatural horror into mainstream religious practice. But to understand how he became involved with Wicca, we first have to look at Gardner's formative years. Gerald Gardner was born in Lancashire, England in 1884. He had two much older siblings. Both were already adults by the time baby Gardner was born. His only younger brother was born when he was two years old. His parents were affluent timber farmers with ample resources. This was important as Gardner suffered from asthma and doctors determined that the chilly air of England was a threat to his health. So from an early age, Gardner and his nanny moved around the world. He escaped Britain's harsh winters in favor of months-long vacations in warmer tropical climates. Although Gardner returned to see his family in the summers, he didn't feel particularly close to them. By the time he was 16 in 1900, he had permanently moved out of Europe with his nanny. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Psychiatrist Elizabeth Tillinghast found that lonely children often grow up to be lonely adults. People who spend their earliest years without strong social support, and especially those who are distant from their mothers, tend to enter adulthood struggling to connect with others. Even people with large social networks can still struggle with feelings of loneliness that stem from their formative years. In addition to preventing close relationships, his constant travels prevented Gardner from receiving much in the way of a formal education. But what he lacked in proper schooling, he made up for with his natural curiosity. He talked to people from all different backgrounds and learned eagerly about their lives and cultures. He developed a hunger for knowledge, especially that which was secret or arcane. Gardner's travels took him to France, the Canary Islands, and Ceylon, which is known today as Sri Lanka. It was there that locals first exposed him to the principles of Buddhism, as well as those of Freemasonry. At some point between 1908 and 1910, Gardner joined the Salon chapter of the Freemasons, a secret society that promised to help him unlock ancient hidden knowledge. Now in his mid-twenties, Gardner rose through the ranks quickly, reaching Master Mason by June 27, 1910. A week later, he resigned his membership. He saw no purpose in remaining with a group that had nothing more to teach him. Next, he became obsessed with obscure tribal religions, especially those with magical or spiritualist traditions. Gardner frequented mediums and fortune tellers, but was disappointed by their paltry tricks. However, his discouragement didn't lessen his fascination with the supernatural. Gardner had a voracious appetite to learn about any topic. 
but he never moved past his particular fascination with witchcraft and exotic magical cultures. In early adulthood, he split his energies between studying the supernatural and his latest obsession, anthropology. Of course, with no college degree, Gardner couldn't pursue anthropology professionally. Instead, he moved to Borneo. On the island, he continued to meet indigenous people and learn about their traditions in his spare time. But after years of globe-trotting and study, in 1927, 43-year-old Gardner finally had a reason to stop traveling and settle down when he met 34-year-old Donna Rosedale. The pair fell in love and soon wed. In the mid-1930s, Gardner and Donna moved to London and then to the British countryside. Even in small towns, though, Gardner was an expert at connecting with locals who interested him, in this case, counterculture and intelligentsia circles. Gardner worked hard in England to establish his reputation as a scholar, anthropologist, and magical enthusiast by finding his way into all the right parties. He even called on connections from his Masonic past to introduce him to the region's local secret societies. Although Gardner formed a wide social circle, he found himself most comfortable with the sorts of outsiders who eschewed proper decorum and shared his enthusiasm for the taboo. When he connected with British countercultural thinkers in the late 1930s, he didn't only find a community, he found an identity. Author Karen Carbo explored why some people become close friends while others remain casual acquaintances. And she found that the closest bonds are often formed between people who reinforce each other's self-perception. Britain's magic aficionados confirmed Gardner's own identity as an anthropologist and supernatural expert. Their support encouraged Gardner to follow his passions as far as he could. To supplement his occult education, Gardner read any book on witchcraft he could get his hands on. He was especially enamored with the works of Dr. Margaret Murray. She was an Egyptologist and archaeologist whose 1921 book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe, helped shape contemporary understandings of traditional English religion. Murray studied court transcripts from witch trials in the 1500s and 1600s trying to find some commonality in the testimony from confessed witches. She deduced that the accused all shared the same basic belief system. She coined the term coven, or a group of three to 13 witches who worship and cast spells together. Most intriguing, Murray speculated that the witch trials of the past hadn't entirely stamped out pagan magic practices. She suggested that some covens may have continued to practice up to the present day, operating in secret. When Gardner discovered her books, he was thrilled by the notion that ancient witches might still be practicing the craft in England in his own lifetime. He wasn't only intellectually excited by the possibility, he desperately wished that magic was real. While most people would deny they believe in magic, nearly everyone is susceptible to magical thinking. This is a psychological phenomenon in which a person believes something that isn't supported by, or in some cases directly contradicts, facts. This includes common and innocuous irrationalities, like the belief in luck or superstition. But for people dealing with problems like chronic loneliness, 
Magical thinking can become deeply ingrained in their worldview. It can be seen as the cure for their missing connection. Gardner longed for a more magical world as he dealt with life's banalities. Although he and his wife wanted a stable home, without annual wintertime travels, he suffered from the same respiratory problems that had plagued his youth. His doctor recommended that Gardner treat his symptoms with naturalism, better known as nudism. At the time, naturalism was a very popular remedy for everything from low self-esteem to poor circulation. Doctors believed that it provided stress relief through connecting to nature, as well as the invigorating effects of air-to-skin contact. Gardner took to naturalism. He found nude walks through the forest to be biologically and mentally stimulating. Even better, it gave him the opportunity to connect with the local nudist community. He came to find that naturalism also attracted counterculture people with eccentric attitudes about nature and traditional beliefs like himself. According to Gardner, it was thanks to his naturalist connections that he met a mysterious 59-year-old woman named Old Dorothy Clutterbuck sometime around 1939. Although the records are clear that Dorothy and Gardner knew each other, there's little evidence to suggest that she had anything to do with nudism. In fact, many of the claims Gardner made about Dorothy are dubious. By all accounts, she was a prim and proper Christian woman who disdained counterculture movements. Gardner insisted, however, that Dorothy's socially conservative persona was just a cover to draw suspicion away from her arcane activities. He claimed that as he and Dorothy grew closer, she revealed her beliefs in New Age teachings, like reincarnation. At one point, while discussing their family histories, Dorothy proclaimed that she and Gardner had known one another in their past lives. The real turning point in their relationship, however, came when Gardner confessed that one of his ancestors had been burnt at the stake for witchcraft. It's hard to verify whether this ancestor really existed. It's possible that Gardner invented a witch relative due to a desire to belong to an older magical tradition. But Dorothy seemed to believe Gardner's story completely. After he disclosed his past, she announced, you are of the witch blood. Come back to where you belong. Dorothy then revealed to Gardner that she belonged to an ancient and secret religion. Her practices stretched back to prehistoric England, well before the first Christian missionaries arrived. Dorothy was a witch. Up next, Gardner unlocks the secrets of witchcraft. Now back to the story. After a lonely childhood, 55-year-old Gerald Gardner found a welcoming community among British nudists in 1939. Not long afterward, he was drawn into a more secretive society when his friend, 59-year-old Dorothy Clutterbuck, revealed that she belonged to an ancient coven of witches. Gardner soon realized how much of a risk Dorothy had taken in revealing herself to him. According to Dorothy, their coven had been persecuted for centuries. She told Gardner of the burning times, a legendary period in which countless witches were executed for their beliefs. Although the burning times were centuries in the past, many modern witches operated in secret out of fear that the persecution could resume any day. 
even in the 1930s, an era when most people agreed that magic didn't exist, Puritan-era laws remained on the books, permitting the police to arrest anyone who cast spells. Since 1736, the Witchcraft Act forbid the practice of magic, mediumship, and other cult practices in England. Ironically, the Witchcraft Act was written and passed by skeptics and was designed to target con artists who ran fortune-telling and psychic scams. However, the wording of the law forbade any kind of magical practice whatsoever, and Dorothy feared to go public because of it. Instead, she practiced in secret for her entire life, as had her mother and her grandmother before, going back centuries. They'd all been members of the New Forest Coven. And in Gardner, she saw the perfect potential initiate. Under Dorothy's tutelage, Gardner learned her ancient beliefs about nature, divinity, and magic. She explained that her people had always worshipped a god and a goddess, who were equal in power. The coven believed in sexual equality, love of nature, and reincarnation. They were capable of performing magic spells, but were bound by a strict code of ethics. For much of Western history, witches were depicted as evil hags who served Satan, but Gardner learned that these negative depictions were the result of Christian propaganda efforts, which attempted to delegitimize England's traditional beliefs and encourage conversions. All of Dorothy's teachings stemmed from a single document, the New Forest Coven Charter. The record was sparse. Much of the traditional practice had been lost to time, but the teachings that remained were sacred. At this point, we should mention that there's no evidence the religious practices Gardner described ever existed in pre-Christian England. Dorothy's alleged claims that their practices stretched back into antiquity are dubious. But Gardner was convinced her teachings were legitimate. Much of what she said confirmed the things he had always hoped were true, that magic was real and had been practiced in secret since ancient times. Gardner also had faith in his own anthropological skill, and his gut instincts told him Dorothy Clutterbuck was a real witch. Under her mentorship, Gardner hoped that he too could learn to perform magic. In September of 1939, 55-year-old Gardner visited Dorothy's palatial home. Usually, the coven met in the forest, but as fall grew colder, more of their gatherings were hosted indoors. This meeting proved to be the most important of Gardner's life as a witch. He was initiated into the coven. Because the New Forest Coven was a secret society, the details of the initiation ceremony aren't fully known. We can, however, make some broad strokes deductions from Gardner's writings. As was the case in any important magical ceremony Gardner described, Including initiations, the event featured food, wine, and music. As part of the proceedings, Gardner was also painfully scourged or whipped, but it was worth it, in Gardner's mind, to join the New Forest Coven's community. Gardner described his feelings at the time, saying, It was, I think, the most wonderful night of my life. In true witch fashion, we had a dance afterwards and kept it up until dawn. During the final incantation, Gardner heard the coven repeating the same word over and over again, Wicca, Wicca, 
Wicca. He never heard that word before, but he somehow knew at the core of his being that Wicca was the name of his religion, and he could now call himself a Wiccan. In his later writings, Gardner claimed that the term came from an old Scotch-English word that meant wise ones. We should note, however, that Gardner didn't coin the word Wicca. He was most likely exposed to it through the writings of Dr. Margaret Murray, years before he met Dorothy Clutterbuck. In Murray's book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe, she defined Wicca as an Anglo-Saxon word, meaning witch. Whatever the history, Gardner came to learn that words and their meanings were very important to Wicca. After his initiation, he even took on a new craft name for use within the coven. Gerald Gardner became Skyer. With the new name came new responsibilities, including a spell with the power to change the course of all of British history. By the following year, 1940, England was mired in World War II. In January, mandatory rationing of butter and sugar began. The new Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, spouted hawkish rhetoric that he would not cooperate with Nazi Germany. For many Brits, the thought of combat on English soil was palpable. The country was on high alert, especially after Axis armies successfully blitzkrieged Holland and Luxembourg and also invaded France. In February of that year, the British government started planning for an evacuation in the event of a Nazi attack. Dorothy Clutterbuck, Gerald Gardner, and the rest of the coven also feared a Nazi invasion. And in the spring and summer of 1940, the coven decided to take matters into their own hands. The witches performed monthly rituals to keep Hitler from ever reaching England. They started this sometime between May and August of 1940. When the moon was waning, representatives from several covens throughout the country gathered in the forest. Of course, there's no record of these other covens, so it's difficult to say just how many there were, or if any of them actually existed. But according to Gardner, 17 witches in all participated. The Wiccans gathered brush into a sacred shape called the Great Circle. They then lit a bonfire and several candles, arranging them in such a way as to direct their magical energy toward Adolf Hitler and his troops. Then they chanted, You cannot cross the sea. You cannot cross the sea. You cannot come. You cannot come. As was the case in all Wiccan ceremonies, the casting wasn't complete without dancing. While the witches chanted, they held hands and moved together, first clockwise, then counterclockwise, with periodic feints toward the fire. They couldn't stop dancing until at least one witch collapsed from exhaustion. This sort of enchantment was a particularly difficult casting and came at a cost. Gerald Gardner claimed that his chronic asthma became far worse after he cast this spell. It was a sacrifice he made willingly to preserve national stability. But others gave up even more. A local newspaper editor and a Highcliff area blacksmith both died in August of 1940, and occultists pointed to these deaths as the result of the New Forest Coven spell. 
columnist Glenn Collins noted that high-stakes ceremonies, like the anti-Hitler spell, may have increased Gardner's sense of loyalty to the new forest coven. When a new convert is confronted with an early threat to their faith, and especially when they're proactively involved in solving the crisis, they will feel even more devoted to their newfound religious home. The Nazi threat was all too real to Gardner before the magical ceremony. By casting a spell on Hitler, he had the chance to recapture his power over the situation and forge his loyalty to his fellow coven members. Whether it was because of their incantation or simply good allied strategy, the Nazis never reached the British shores. And in September of 1945, World War II ended. 61-year-old Gerald Gardner, along with the entire New Forest Coven, was safe again. Of course, there's no official record that these ceremonies ever happened. Gardner argued this is because, as a secret society, the New Forest Coven had to operate in the shadows. Skeptics countered that he made up the entire story after the fact. What we do know is that for most of the 1940s, Gardner was entrenched in supernatural circles. In 1947, he established a new coven in Brickett Wood. Because his commitments with the New Forest Coven prevented Gardner from getting too involved with Brickett Wood operations, he appointed a woman named Doreen Valiente, the high priestess of the new chapter. This is the first coven whose existence has been recorded, and critics point to this date as the real founding of the Wiccan religion, doubting its prehistoric origins. But Brickett Wood was just the beginning for Gardner. He looked for more opportunities to connect with other magic users. And on May 1st, 1947, 63-year-old Gerald Gardner met 72-year-old Alistair Crowley. Crowley was famous as a novelist and poet, but he was also an occultist. Coming up, Alistair Crowley grooms Gerald Gardner in the ways of the occult. Now back to the story. 72-year-old Alistair Crowley stood on the foreground of the occult movement in 1940s England. He took great delight in rebelling against his evangelical Christian upbringing and flouting traditional ethics. He was openly bisexual and hired sex workers to perform sadomasochistic acts. He was also fascinated with witchcraft and black magic, which he spoke of openly. Crowley's controversial behavior led the papers of the time to dub him the wickedest man in the world, the master of darkness, and the beast. When they first met, Gerald Gardner felt that Crowley didn't live up to his own reputation. He found that the beast loved posturing and shocking the masses far more than he enjoyed the pursuit of real magical knowledge. But in spite of Gardner's reservations, he and Crowley struck up a friendship on June 14th, Crowley even initiated Gardner into a secret society that he belonged to, Ordo Templi Orientis, or the OTO. Gardner found the OTO to be quite similar to the Freemasons. In fact, practicing Masons were permitted to attend secret OTO rites without joining because the initiation practices were so similar but Gardner still loved the way the OTO incorporated unnamed magical traditions into their ceremonies. But not long after they met, Crowley passed away, 
on December 1, 1947. He left many OTO documents, including detailed charters outlining their rituals and bylaws, to 63-year-old Gardner. However, Gardner was spending more time with the Wiccan covens. He withdrew from the OTO shortly thereafter, but he still kept the documents. Although Gardner had lost interest in the OTO, he continued to explore other magical traditions. Around this time, he became deeply interested in the Kabbalah, or Jewish mysticism. Elements of Kabbalah, like many of the practices that captured Gardner's interest, eventually made their way into Wiccan rituals. Shortly after finding Kabbalah, Gardner took an extended vacation to New Orleans to visit family. During his stay, he became fascinated with voodoo. He later announced that voodoo and Wicca had the same ancient roots, and the two were different expressions of the same religion. Armed with his newfound magical knowledge, at some point in the late 1940s, Gardner returned to England and approached the high priestess, Dorothy Clutterbuck, with a bold new proposition. He wanted to rewrite their most sacred document, the New Forest Coven Charter. Gardner believed that he could flesh out some of his coven's beliefs and practices. Dorothy's earlier lessons had major gaps, and Gardner insisted that his extensive anthropological research armed him with new supernatural knowledge. He could recreate ancient Wiccan beliefs and return them to the coven's sacred texts. As we discussed earlier, Gardner was never formally trained as an anthropologist. He likely overstated his credentials to convince the coven to allow him to embark on this project. But he was successful, as Dorothy gave him her blessing to revise the document. The new charter incorporated much of the language and practices that Gardner had studied in his lifetime. There were clear Masonic influences, as well as large portions of the text that seemed directly lifted from or inspired by the OTO papers. In fact, some skeptics have suggested that Gardner didn't write the New Forest Coven Charter at all, but that it was composed by Alistair Crowley in his final days. Gardner just took the credit. But some of the sources Gardner drew from were anything but ancient or scholarly. He included a Halloween incantation that was copied entirely from a 13th century play. The original text was supposedly a demonic spell, but Gardner repurposed it into a chant to increase the coven's power to be used on Wiccan Halloween or Samhain. Gardner wanted the final draft of the charter to be printed on vellum to make it appear more ancient and authoritative. However, the parchment was difficult to find and very expensive. So instead, he wrote the New Forest Coven Charter on the back of an outdated will. Unfortunately, Gardner didn't keep a record of which portions of the charter were recorded in the original document and which he added. That makes it difficult to determine how much of Wicca is truly traditional and how much is an invention of Gardner. Once more, critics point to this as evidence that the New Forest Coven and its charter never existed prior to Gardner. Regardless, in rewriting the charter, Gardner established himself as a world authority on Wicca and witchcraft. But permanently shaping the New Forest Coven's religious practice wasn't enough for him. He wanted to transform Wicca into a massive global religion with thousands of practitioners. 
And in spite of the coven's protests, he'd soon bring the secret society into the harsh light of day. Loyola University's Dorothy Catherine Cleesbees explored how a new convert's mental state is impacted after finding a new religion. She found that a conversion spurs a person to view all of their social relationships through a religious lens. This is why some people feel the need to proselytize and win new converts to their beliefs, even if their faith isn't inherently evangelical. Gardner wanted to go public with Wicca, but he also wanted to respect his coven, which had remained hidden for centuries. When he proposed publishing a book containing the practices of Wicca, Dorothy Clutterbuck refused. But Gardner was relentless. If he couldn't openly share his beliefs, he decided he'd write a fictional novel incorporating Wiccan practices disguised as fantasy. In 1949, 65-year-old Gardner released High Magic's Aid without his coven's permission or knowledge. Published as a fantasy novel, the book told the story of a group of witches who performed magical rites based on actual Wiccan practices. At least in part, just as he'd revised the coven's charter a few years earlier, Gardner found that there weren't enough well-documented Wiccan practices to support a full novel. So High Magic's aid blended Gardner's Wiccan beliefs with fantastical inventions he used to advance the plot. He hoped that some readers would be able to read between the lines, see the grain of truth about his religion, and join the secret society. Few fans made the appropriate connections, but Dorothy and the other Wiccans realized exactly what he was doing. The coven didn't approve of Gardner sharing their secrets, even if he only did so via insinuation. Although there's no evidence he was formally expelled from either the New Forest Coven or the Brickett Wood Coven after the publication of High Magic's Aid, he spent the subsequent years traveling. Gradually, he fell out of touch with his former colleagues. Even so, between the publication of High Magic's Aid and his revisions to the Charter, it was clear Gardner wanted to reshape Wicca. He loved the religion and its practices, but noticed that the number of covens and practitioners were dwindling. Again, it's hard to say how many Wiccans actually existed at the time, as the only documented coven was the one at Brickett Wood, which Gardner founded. But he feared that if Wicca didn't go public soon, the entire practice would die off and disappear forever. And he was encouraged, because Great Britain was changing around him for the better. In 1951, Parliament replaced the Witchcraft Act with the Fraudulent Mediums Act, which specifically forbade scammers from pretending to have supernatural powers. The practice of real magic, however, was fully legal under the new legislation. Inspired by the new law, Gardner once more advocated for the covens to go public. They had to share their beliefs with the world, especially now that they were safe from the threat of arrest. This time, they found Gardner's arguments persuasive. He may have been bolstered by the fact that Dorothy Clutterbuck passed away in 1951, and she was succeeded by a new high priestess. Most likely in an effort to preserve the high priestess's identity, Gardner never identified her by name in his writings. Instead, we only know her craft name, Dafoe. Dafoe and Gardner had apparently been close friends for a long time. 
even before she accepted the role of high priestess, because Gardner's wife, Donna, was never particularly interested in witchcraft. Dafoe filled Gardner's need for a partner and companion within the coven. In exchange, Dafoe showed Gardner affection and possibly preferential treatment. Their relationship was so close, in fact, that there were rumors the pair was having an affair, although there's no concrete evidence to support that claim. In 1951, with Gardner's prompting, Dafoe was ready to take the new forest coven in a direction that Dorothy had never dared. She gave 67-year-old Gardner her blessing to share his beliefs with the world. For three years, Gardner compiled everything he could find about Wicca. Not only did he detail Wiccan theology, he also traced its history all the way back to prehistoric religious practices to support his claims that the doctrine was ancient. Gardner referenced many of Dr. Margaret Murray's theories in his book, although by that point, much of her work on ancient witchcraft had been discredited. Because her sources were primarily the testimony of accused witches who confessed under duress, her research was of dubious quality. In addition, new archaeological discoveries contradicted many of Murray's claims. Finally, many critics pointed to the utter lack of evidence that witchcraft could have persisted in secret for centuries. But Gardner still believed in Murray and her claims. He backed her original arguments with his own self-proclaimed anthropological expertise. In 1954, Gerald Gardner released his life's work, a book that covered the history of Wicca, its core beliefs, and an overview of its practices. The piece was called Witchcraft Today. The book was explosive in the burgeoning counterculture movement. Previous scholars had published research on traditional religious practices, but this was the first time a self-proclaimed witch stepped into the mainstream. Gardner reportedly received a slew of letters from New Age pagans and traditional magic users worldwide, thanking him for bringing their beliefs to light. But others condemned Gardner and Wicca as harmful or dangerous. He was accused of mocking Christian theology and poisoning the minds of impressionable children. Gardner delighted at every response. In his mind, even his critics served a practical purpose, as the controversy around Wicca ensured that the group would receive even more exposure. The more people heard about Wicca, the more they'd be willing to join. And Gardner positioned himself as a personal mentor to any potential new converts. Forensic psychologists Emily Pika and Carrie Verno found that as people age, the boundaries between friendships and mentorship relationships begin to blur. Older people seek out relationships not only based on shared interests, but also for the opportunity to impart their wisdom to the next generation. Although Gardner had always longed for a community, as he grew older, he began to seek out pupils more than peers. In order to ensure potential converts weren't scared off from Wicca, Gardner did what he could to guide the religion's narrative in the press. In the years following the publication of Witchcraft Today, Gerald Gardner, now into his early 70s, gave frequent interviews and wrote numerous articles about his religion. His fellow witches objected to some of his disclosures, but there seemed to be no real consensus on which rites were supposed to remain secret and which were okay to discuss with the wider world. 
Letters exchanged between Gardner and other Wiccans in the Brickett Wood Coven grew increasingly tense and even hostile, bickering about Gardner's fame-seeking threatened to tear them apart. Even worse, the uptick in public attention toward Wiccans was accompanied by frenzied accusations of Satanism, ritual murder, and dark magic. As England got caught up in a panic, irresponsible reporters and tabloids claimed that ordinary accidental deaths and murders were actually caused by the occult. During Valiente, the Brickedwood Coven High Priestess tried to bring him in check. She asked him to sign a contract outlining proper procedures when making statements to the press. Gardner balked at the request. He was now the face of Wicca, and nobody could tell him what to do. But he could also sense that he was wearing out his welcome with the local covens. He grew anxious to leave the country. In the years after the publication of Witchcraft Today, Gardner and his wife spent more time away from England than ever before. While traveling during the 1950s and 60s, Gardner founded new covens all over the world. He personally initiated countless outsiders into Wicca. He didn't see any purpose in keeping the old ways a secret, especially when so many book readers responded enthusiastically to his disclosures. In an effort to preserve some of the New Forest Coven's original teachings, he insisted that only he had the authority to initiate new members, and those he initiated could initiate others, and so on. As Wicca grew and spread, each new member was able to trace a lineage back to Gardner. By 1965, an estimated 1,623 people belonged to a Gardnerian coven, and with each day, the numbers grew. Gardner no longer had to fear that Wicca was in danger of dying out. Instead, public interest exploded, much to the discomfort of his more traditionalist coven members. Thanks to Gardner's efforts, witchcraft resumed in England. But dark suspicions were already forming, and the coven started to fear the burning times had returned. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with part two of Gerald Gardner's story. We'll explore how Wicca's new status as a public religion opened it up to scapegoating. We'll also discuss how infighting led the society to splinter and reform into one of the fastest growing religious movements today. For more information on Gerald Gardner and the New Forest Coven, amongst the many sources we used, we found Modern Wicca by Michael Howard and The Meaning of Witchcraft by Gerald Gardner. Extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Brian Golub with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. 
Cults is written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 